0: Thank you, thank you very much. Yes. Uh, thank you so much. It's, it's, it's exciting to be here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to Saga Things since you're being recorded at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm John Sexton. And I'm Andy Fringer. Um, and John, are we going to try to do this as much like an episode as possible? I see we kind of. Uh, we are recording this presentation for the Medieval Studies Outreach Seminar here mm-hmm. at our alma mater, University of Connecticut. So yeah. That's for them. They, you knew this.
1: Yeah, so we've got a little recording device up here, uh, recording it for uh, an episode, or at least if the sound quality is good enough, we'll use it right. uh, for an episode. But uh, yeah, we're very excited to be back here at UConn, where John and I actually became friends, is where we first
0: met. That's it's very strong. Uh, hmm. it's, it's also when we discovered the Icelandic sagas. Uh, it's where we formed a bond, really, that would evolve into this podcast, into the saga thing. Yeah, so this is a
1: momentous occasion Absolutely. for UConn yes. that we are here. You're welcome. Uh, But we're not here to talk about our memories and things like that. We're here to talk to these good people about the Viking Age and the difficulties of separating fact from fiction, which if you've ever read the sagas...
0: It really is problematic, isn't it? It's a...
1: Yeah. Um, our goal for today is to explore a few issues in some detail, as much detail as we can get, and hopefully show the value of
0: interdisciplinary
1: approaches to some historical questions. So
0: that's the plan. Uh, we're going to begin today with an exploration of slavery during the Viking Age. It's a topic we've been circling around for a while on the podcast and just never had a chance to go to directly.
1: Yes. Uh, we've met a lot of slaves on our journey through the sagas so far, and it's about time that we turn our attention to those guys. Uh, In the limited time that we have, we are going to endeavor to explore the historical and social context of slavery in Iceland during the medieval period. Uh, This is a difficult task, but we are going to do our best to delve into the lives and the experiences of those who were enslaved with the limited resources
0: that we have available to us. The very limited resources, uh, yes. Uh, Despite being a small and isolated society in the North Atlantic, Iceland had a very complex system, uh, both economically and a slavery system. Uh, that played a significant role in its economy and in its culture. Uh, so we're going to examine the terminology, uh, look at the different ways uh, slavery existed or sort of was conceived of, mm. uh, and the ways that those systems affected the lives of both the slaves and the free Icelanders. Uh, while we do have some documentary evidence to confirm the existence of slavery in the Viking Age, uh, it's the law code essentially what we have. Uh, but there's very little else that helps us to paint a picture of the reality in which slaves lived on the island or how they were treated or how they thought of themselves. Yeah.
1: So the study of slavery in medieval Iceland is really plagued by the difficulty of separating fact from fiction due to uh, heavy reliance on the sagas. There's a lack of concrete evidence for us. And there's also very biased perspectives of authors who are writing hundreds of years after the period that they're describing. So all this makes it very necessary to approach any topic like this with caution and skepticism. But that doesn't mean we should avoid the topic altogether. Mm -hmm. Um, And since you and I cut our teeth on the Sagas of the Icelanders here at UConn, well, this is a great place for us to do this little experiment. All right. Well, we flipped a coin, and you chose the topic for the first session, Eddie, so Mm -hmm. I'll give you the honors. Where do we start? Oh, that's very nice of you. Well, uh, (laughs) it's a very, very big topic, and there's many, many avenues to explore. Slaves come up in almost every
0: text. We've got about an hour, so...
1: Well, okay. Well, we could start with uh, an overview of examples of references to slavery and slaves in the poetic Edda. If you've ever read the Edda, um, they are all over that as well. So, poems like the Rigsthula, for example. It's a common starting point uh, because it explains the origins of the three social classes: starts with slaves, then moves into freemen, and then nobles. These are all products of Heimdall, or Rig, as he's known in the text, uh, traveling around the earth and visiting three representative married couples from each class. And he leaves uh, them after sleeping with them each for three nights. He sleeps between them uh, on their bed. And when he leaves, uh, the wife is always
0: pregnant uh, right. with each one yeah. of these places. Yeah, this is a good starting point. Uh, so uh, the, the, uh, the first time he does this, he sleeps with a woman named Edda, uh, which translates as great-grandmother, mm-hmm. uh, gives birth to, who gives birth to an ugly and dark child, we're told. Uh, His knuckles are gnarled, his fingers are thick, his back is old and bent. Uh, He's exceptionally strong, uh, and he quickly proves himself adept at hard labor, but little else. Uh, And they name him
1: Thrall. Yes, so Thrall is the name. And as Thrall grows a little bit older, he meets a very ugly girl who's walking down the, the road. And she's got bent legs, she's got gravel stuck in her feet, and she's sunburned all over her, especially her arms. And she's got a crooked nose. Lovely. Yeah. She is actually a perfect match for the rather ugly thrall. And together they have children. They have a bunch of different children. Among the boys are, uh, boys named Weiner, Barn Boy, Course, Clegg, Bedmate, Stinker. And then there's Log and Fatso and Slacker and Gloomy and Bent Back
0: and Long Legs and Sleepy and Droopy and doc yes. and yeah, uh, very hard to resist. And there's daughters as well: uh, Claude, log, bulging calves, Soot nose, slave woman. It's kind of self-explanatory. Uh, <laughs> loud mouth, tattercoat,
1: and crane legs. Yeah. So the names are obviously meant to be kind of ridiculous and disturbing, but they do kind of paint a fairly vivid picture of the stereotypes and the hardships
0: that slaves would have had to endure in medieval Scandinavia. Yeah, but I think we need to be a little bit careful here because it's a poem. right? It's got a complicated history, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's written sometime between 900 and 1300, which is a very, very broad period to be talking about. Uh, Its origins are somewhat dubious and may not even be Scandinavian at all. Yeah, which is why I don't think we should start with the Riks
1: what (laughs) yeah i don't think we should start with that text interesting workaround. go ahead yeah no the ringstula just simply isn't reliable at all and it really (laughs) leans heavily on stock tropes so it's a it's obviously a fiction and it's for fun um plus it's at the beginning of nearly every single scholarly discussion of viking slavery um so why would we <laughs> do that? We don't want to be hacks here. We're
0: introducing the topic. <laughs>
1: uh, but the, uh, the appearance of slaves in the Edic poems like Rigsthula, the Thruskrida, or the Gudrunakrida, mm. uh, they do at least confirm that slavery was part of Viking existence, part of their lives, dating back to at least the era in which these poems were composed. Right. But to be clear, we're not starting with the Rigsthula and the Poetic Edda that we just talked about. Definitely not starting with right. the rings. That would be ridiculous.
0: Could have fooled me. Right. Uh, we do only have an hour, so we should really actually right. start.
1: Not much time, so let's stick to the legendary for the moment. Good. But let's switch over to something like a saga, which is our bread and
0: butter. It's our bread and
1: butter. Go for it. So let's start with the story of Brady and Sigi. Oh, you could write on the board if you want. You want to write their names? That'd be a good thing to do. This, is, this, this isn't like a permanent pen. We're going to trust that it works. Here, <laughs> Here use this one. This <laughs> is black great much better and it won't it, it also won't work very well if i know score correct that's good enough Brady yeah so the story of Brady who is a slave and a man named Sigi and they're in the first chapter of the saga of the Volsons yes yeah, this is Actually, a good
0: choice you oh i can keep, keep, yeah, keep that okay uh for those of you who aren't familiar with how many of you have read the saga of the Volsons have you come across that one is it a familiar text Lovely. That's fine. We can do a quick summary. Um, It'll be fine. So, this is the story of the Volsung family. Uh, the most famous member is Sigurd, the dragon slayer, uh, Sigurd uh He's at the center of the story. And um, if you are familiar with this thing at all from other contexts, it would be the story of Sigurd and his uncle, the dragon Fafnir, uh, and the recovery of the Ring of the Nibelungans. Yeah. Uh, and the tragic love triangle that results between Sigurth, Gudrun, and Brunhild. Brunhild is a combination of Valkyrie and Warrior Woman. You're right, that's the story. So, those of you who are big
1: Wagner fans and Ride of the Valkyries and all that stuff, you have a vague familiarity with, with this story. Uh, but like most sagas, it begins several generations before the hero is born. So, Sigurd's nowhere to be found in the beginning. And that really confuses my students. Like, what is this mm-hmm. story? Um, in this case, the story begins with Sigurd's great-great-grandfather, whose name is Sigi And he was, the Christian adapter of this text tells us, said to be the son of Odin.
0: Right. Uh, and... In the, in the prose edit of the infamous Snorri Sturluson, mm-hmm. uh, Siggy is included in the prologue as the third son of Odin and the progenitor of the Volsung line. Yeah. Uh, the line that would go on to rule the territories of, what, uh, Eastern Francia.
1: Yeah, it's then Eastern yeah. Francia. Um, so that's two sources that we have. Uh, so I think we can practically call this true history. I mean, look, right?
0: descending from Odin is a good claim. Do you, do you guys know that the, um, uh, the current king of England, Charles III... The official genealogy of the royal family uh, is descended from Odin. Uh, but this is actually, if you go to their website, if you go this back is their official enough, yeah. statement. That they, Elizabeth II, was the was the Valkyrie, was the daughter of Odin. Uh, it's sort of gives you a whole new angle on her. Uh, yeah, uh, but we're we're, we're going to let the historians be the judge of how historical this. is. So, yeah, takes, you tell so. us if this is a historical text or not. Uh, now, as the son of
1: Odin, Sigi is naturally one of the most powerful men in his district. Uh, there is, however, another man. Uh, in this district, who is said to be almost as powerful. And his name is Skadi. He'll write that up on the board for you. And the saga tells us that Skadi had a thrall named Brady, and he was the most efficient in his duties, and just as good as people who counted for more than he did, and even better than some, which is a nice compliment to Brady, Mm who is a slave. Now, one winter day, Sigi, Odinson, by the way, uh, goes out to hunt deer, and, and Brady goes with him. So it's Sigi and this slave going out to hunt for deer. And at the end of the day, the two men uh, gather the deer that they've slain together and see who's done uh, a better job. So here we have this nobleman and a humble slave pulling together the resources that they've collected in the forest. And it's immediately clear to both men, kind of Cain and Abel style, that Brady had the much better day than Sigi. And he'd managed to kill more deer and larger ones than Sigi did. And this is something that Sigi doesn't take very well. In fact, he remarks how strange it is that a slave should do so well at hunting and collecting deer uh, when compared to a man who is a wealthy and important son of a great king. And before Brady even has a chance to respond, Sigi leaps up and kills Brady right there. And then he throws him into a pile of snow and brings all the deer back to town by
0: himself. Sigi is what we would call a troubled individual.
1: Yeah, well, you know how wealthy king's sons can be. No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> You've read enough stuff. Fair enough. True, yeah. Uh, but when he returns home with a whole lot of deer and no Brady, well, everyone in town is wondering where the heck Brady might be. So Sigi says he saw Brady riding away into the woods, right? So I am going that way. Um, he's suggesting that Brady as a slave probably is running away. Uh, but everyone's like, that doesn't sound about right to me. So Skadi, who owns Brady, says, I'm going to have some men go out and look for uh, little Brady. And so his men go out in the woods, they search around, and sure enough, before too long, they find in a snowdrift uh, a corpse of his frozen body. And so Skadi says that from that moment forward, we should call snowdrifts bredafon. Bredafon. So he's using the word breda, bredi, which means broad, um, and snow. So it's broad snow. a Snowdrift. Old Norse word for snowdrift. Kind of interesting.
0: Right. And I don't want to leave the audience too much here, but I, you can suspect that this is really more... Uh, Toponymy and onomastics than it is actual history.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, to conclude this brief story, mm-hmm. Skadi returns home. He's got proof of Brady's murder in the body that was thrown into a snowdrift. And shortly after, Sigi is declared an
0: outlaw. And he's forced to leave his father's kingdom. And that's immediately what he does. Right. And if you're concerned about poor Sigi's fate, you don't need to be. His father follows him into exile for a long time, gives him good fighting ships, and an army full of capable warriors. Yeah. And before you know it, Siggy has conquered a new land for himself, uh, and established a kingdom for himself in Hunland.
1: Hunland, yes. It is very good to have Odin as your father, too. When you fall on your face, he gives you warships and soldiers and lets you build a kingdom for yourself.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm sure it works out very nicely. Yeah. Uh, so, why open with this, obviously, fictional story of Siggy and Skadi and Uh It feels... Dare I say literary. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, sure. Well, there's no doubt it is
1: a literary text. And it does incorporate some very interesting legends from the known history of the 5th century migration. It blends elements of fact with myth and magic and fantasy. But like the edic poems, hidden within the fiction is a reflection of some social realities. And I think these social realities are worth paying attention to. And because we have very little in the way of documentary sources available to us from the Viking Age itself, well... These kinds of texts can be useful if, again, we approach them with care and with caution. For example? Well, I mean, even though the story is full of literary tropes and it doesn't actually say that much about uh, about Brady, it does still have to represent a recognizable reality for those who were in contemporary audiences. Mm-hmm. right? So though this text is written down in the mid to late 13th century, it does describe distant Viking pasts that must at least be plausible to audiences of the author's day. And whether or not it's real, it's not. But even even if it's not real, it does introduce some useful questions for yeah. us, especially for those of us who are interested in the study of slavery in the Viking Age. Like, what exactly is a thrall, and how does it differ from a slave, if at all? What kinds of jobs did they do? What was their legal status? What does this story about the murder of Breidi tell us about Icelandic... I don't know what you're trying to accomplish here. Oh, thrall. The word thrall. Okay. What does it tell us about the murder of Bredi? What does that tell us about Icelandic or Scandinavian attitudes towards slaves? And what's the murder of a slave got to do with the Old Norse word for snowdrifts?
0: (laughs) Yeah, we can cover some of these. Uh, Let's start with terminology, uh, because I think that's something that I'm already familiar with. Uh, As you said, the saga of the Volsungs calls Bredi a thrall, a prayer. this is a common general term for a male slave in Old Norse. Uh, and though there appears to be some controversy as to exactly to how universal that term is or how it enters the language, uh, whether it's Proto-Germanic or whether it's a loan word some other kind, it's clear that the Old Norse term thrale, uh has an impact on the languages of the lands touched by the Norse in the Viking Age. Right, They take this word with them to describe their servants. Uh, for example, the Old uh, English slave term theal, uh gives way to the Old Norse thrall. Uh, the same thing happens in Old Irish, where thrall becomes uh, trael. uh Both are late adoptions, and they appear more frequently starting in about the 10th century, which would mean that it's following on the heels of Viking expansion.
1: Yeah. And while the term thrall is at least recognizable for modern audiences interested in the world of the Vikings, the frequent use of the word thrall in place of the word slave in research and discussions of slavery in uh, Viking Age uh, Scandinavia it actually creates some favorable distance from the harsh reality of slavery. Mm-hmm. Neil Price observes, quote, Vikings were not only slavers, but the kidnapping, sale and forced exploitation of human beings was always central, a central pillar to their culture.
0: Yeah, we can quibble with some of that, but I think that's a good starting point, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now, at the same time, there are some distinctions to be made between the words thrial and slave, especially here in America, where the latter term obviously is filtered through the horrors of Antebellum South. And while there's no doubt that slavery existed throughout the Viking Age and beyond in medieval Scandinavia, the scholarship is anything but consistent on the exact nature of slavery and the varied experiences of those who were bought, sold, and forced into labor there. Whether they were captured in Viking raids on the shores of the Baltic or the British Isles, whether they were born into slavery at home or forced into slavery due to debt, criminal prosecution, or even sometimes voluntary submission into slavery, slaves were a part of Viking age life. But the exact circumstances in which they lived, how they were viewed and treated during those periods, it's largely a matter of academic speculation.
0: Right. One thing we can guarantee is that not every slave was as highly thought of or well-treated as Bravey, at least until his death. Uh, the terminology from various surviving law codes reveals to us that there is a variety of forms of slavery. Not, 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 every, not every slave is equal. They all place slaves, obviously, at the bottom of the hierarchy below freedmen, But the range of jobs and experiences differed significantly. It depended on where uh, the, the person was, when they found themselves in slavery, um, what their personal skill set might be and how they might make themselves most useful on the farm or facility. Uh, in uh, Much like in other more developed slave societies, uh, the Roman uh, Empire or the American South, uh, there's a distinction between uh, a domestic servant and a farm worker, uh, one who's charged with cutting turf and uh, tending to crops and animals, doing physical labor, stacking rocks for fences, that kind of thing.
1: Which is mentioned all throughout the Rigsula as this is what slaves typically right. do. Right, so they get,
0: they're getting their names from the various kinds of physical labor that they That's would right. do, right? And th- these were the, uh, the Fjolstner, the, uh, the stable hands, the manual laborers. Uh, these are the slaves who worked farms and had the hardest, most labor-intensive jobs. Uh, they would be the ones with bulging calves, with uh, twisted bodies, right, sunburned skin, uh, crooked noses. Uh, but not all male slaves were destined for a life of hard labor. Uh, the... Uh, Thion was a household servant. His labors were uh, difficult, but less physically grueling than the farm thralls. Uh, and sometimes they'd be, and even be rise up to be put in charge of uh, the, the manor, at which point they'd become the, the brutti, uh, a manager or a steward of a farm, a uh, person who sort of oversaw the work of other uh, laborers. Uh, technically, the brutti is still an unfree individual, but this is a person who commanded a great deal of respect, um, would be regarded as a person of substance within the community, uh, even by those of other farms, uh, and would be respected mainly for their ability to keep the farm running smoothly. So the more competent they were, the higher their sort of star would rise. In other words, a thrall might not have their freedom or access to the same rights as freedmen, but they existed on a spectrum of opportunity, a, spe- a social spectrum of their own. Uh, in which they could rise uh, up to levels. And the degree to which that is the case is something we're still just beginning to understand. Uh, In fact, the evidence seems to suggest that in some places, even thralls could be given plots of their own, uh, land of their own to work and to live on, uh, with the expectation that they would then pay a portion of their yield in rents or as a kind of uh, fee for being allowed to independently farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they hand over whatever it is, whether it's crops or milk or meat, and so the line between the slave and the tenant farmer starts to become a little bit blurred.
1: Yeah, yeah. And speaking of specialized roles, uh, we do have a few examples of slaves actually entering the very scant docu- documentary evidence of medieval Scandinavia. Where? Well, I have a picture, um, uh, but now we're signed out. Uh-oh. 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 We're in well, S- Stephanie okay. Malinowski's... It's okay. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> well, there is a rune stone. There are rune stones. We had it up in, when we first got here, so mm-hmm. maybe you saw it. Uh, a little bit earlier, um, but there are rune stones from Denmark and Sweden, uh, and the dates are very, very difficult to kind of track, um, but on one of these stones from the late 10th or early 11th century, uh, it's from Horning, Denmark, we see a, sl- a stone raised by a freed slave, and it is a memorial to the man who gave him his freedom, and the inscription reads, Toki Smith raised this stone in memory of Thorki Silgudmundersen, who gave him gold and freedom.
0: So Toki Smith would be Toki the blacksmith.
1: Yes. It's hard to say, but prob- very probably, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many slaves in the Viking Age were skilled laborers and expert craftsmen. And given that Tolkien Smith somehow manages to raise not one, but two runestones in his life, I'd say that he enjoyed a great deal of success plying his trade after Thorkisel granted him his freedom. And this stone is a monument to the, uh, a monument of gratitude to that gift.
0: And what about the second stone?
1: Well, the second one's found in a place called uh, Grensten, which is about thirty miles to the north of where the first stone was found. And this one reads that Toki Smith raised this stone in memory of Hrifli, son of Asker Bjornsson, and he says, "May God help their souls." It's right. a nice thing. So,
0: assuming that this is the same Toki, thirty miles apart. Yeah, uh, it sounds like Toki's a good friend to have.
1: I assume that Toki uh, is kind of like Brady. He was well liked. He was talented, and likely a better person than most, even. When he was free.
0: Uh, that's a bold assumption. <laughs> I said we're about pure speculation uh, here. Fair this enough. Do, fair right? enough. We can right? do that. Uh, speaking of Brady's talent and reputation, uh, we should acknowledge that most slaves in the Icelandic sagas are not usually depicted with that yeah. same degree of respect that the Volsunga saga shows to Brady.
1: Yeah. To be fair, Brady is hardly the focus of the chapter that he appears in and gets murdered in, of course. He's there as a literary device. He's there to trigger the inciting incident that sends Sigi into exile, Mm -hmm. right? He's a pawn. He's a pawn both in the hands of the men who are taking advantage of him and the author who's using him for his
0: own purposes. Right, but that's fair, but that falls into a point that I want to make. Slaves in the sagas uh, typically, not always, but typically are... Uh, Set types. characterized by ignorance or ugliness, incompetence or deviousness, whatever sort of the one characteristic they need to be in that moment is.
1: That's right. So Stefan Brink, uh, one of the scholars uh, who's done a lot of research on thraldom in Scandinavia, points this out as well in his chapter on slaves in the sagas. And he collects lots of great examples. And he notes that thralls fulfill a useful role throughout Old Norse literature, be it edic poetry or sagas. And usually they provide a contrast with the hero. So if you think about uh, thralls that we encounter in the saga frequently being described in negative terms, being dark, being short, being cowardly or ineffective overall, they prove useful in the storyteller's bag of tricks because Mm -hmm. they provide a clear contrast to the hero that's being established. The hero is conversely going to be usually tall, usually rather happy, usually well-spoken, fair and handsome. It's important to put that usually in there, isn't it? Yes. Uh, And of course, the heroes are always free always free definitely so that's a very very important contrast right so in a culture so deeply invested in the concepts of fate and then divine Providence when they become Christian a person's station in life is often regarded as a reflection of their moral character and that's mm-hmm. not
0: just in fiction right no, there are so many examples we can use uh, to illustrate some negative characteristics associated with slaves okay um, I picked the first one you go for this one what do you have Um the strong Aeol de strong. Aeol de strong from ever or- Ur- Ur- Okay, I like that. Uh, Eil the Strong is a slave who belongs to Thorbrand of Altafjord. Uh, as the saga tells us, Ael is a big and strong man. Uh, he hates being a slave. Uh, and he repeatedly begs Thorbrand to set him free or to give him an opportunity. He said, I'll do anything to earn my freedom. Yeah,
1: and it just so happens that Thorbrand has a beef with some local rivals, so it's rather convenient. And one of the people that he really hates is a local stud whose name is Bjorn the Bredevik Champion. It's a studly name. If there ever was one. It is, yes. Uh, and he lives up to it. I can promise you. And you can learn all about that in the recently published graphic novel, <laughs> Eric Saga, written Just to throw, by. Throw an advertisement. truly. Yeah, all you right. can go us on Amazon. Tragic. You want.
0: All right. Um, <laughs> I'm sure everybody's going to buy a copy. Uh, yes. Uh, Thorbrand and his sons have a minor feud brewing with uh, Bjorn and his brothers. And it's, no skin off their teeth if a big slave like Ale wants to try his hand at killing one of their enemies in exchange for freedom. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Ale is so desperate to secure his freedom that he's willing to be a pawn in these games. There's an outside chance it can work out for him. He'll take that opportunity, uh, even though he's getting now in between two of the most powerful families in Iceland. That's
1: right. And the problem is that even though Ale is exceedingly strong, He's not really the stealthiest of secret yeah, assassins. It
0: said strong. It didn't say sneaky. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Bjorn the Brotherhood Champion's brother, uh, Thor uh spots Ale He's peeking over the hillside. Uh, he says something like, there's either a crazy bird over there or someone's hiding. It keeps popping its head up. Uh, and when evening falls, Ail the Strong sneaks or tries to sneak up on Bjorn and Thord and their third brother, Arnbjorn. Yeah, and
1: remember, all he has to do in order to be successful here and gain his freedom is kill one of these three great
0: champions. Right, but the problem is he's been lying down all day and his legs are stiff. uh, And so Mm -hmm. he's got sort of pins and needles going. He's forgotten the first rule of assassin school. (coughs) What's the first rule of assassin school, John? Well, make sure that you can feel your legs and make sure that your shoes are tied. Make sure your shoes are tied, right. Uh, So just as he's crossing the threshold of the little shack the brothers are staying in, he steps on his loose shoelace and trips himself. (laughs) a a mistake that we're given to understand would not be made by a professional warrior, a freedman. A true hero. Right, exactly. So he crashes to the floor with a thump, and before he can do anything, the brothers leap on top of him. They threaten to kill him if he doesn't spill the beans uh, for the whole plot, which, of course, he promptly does.
1: Yeah, and then, even though he spills the beans, they kill him in the morning. Yes, they do. Right, and you're not supposed to kill someone at night, then it's like a murder and it's a bad thing. Right, right, there are rules, so they're playing by the rules. Yeah, so they make him think he's going to live, and then as soon as the sun comes up, they're like, sorry, buddy. Um, incidentally, the saga mentions at that moment that the place that they killed um, Ale is called Ale's Pass. So there again, we have the whole naming thing after dead slaves. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it also mentions this port. It, it affirms, something we talked about earlier, that there was a law in those days. Uh, and I'm going to read the law. Uh, anyone who killed another man's slaves would have to pay the owner 12 ounces of silver. Uh, so as long as that payment is, fee- is paid within three days of the killing, no further legal action can be taken on behalf of the dead slave or on behalf of his owner. Right. And so
1: this is another inciting incident. It sets up a big dramatic moment in the saga. Um, but again, you'll have to read it uh, for yourselves if you want to find out what happens.
0: You can also listen to the podcast episodes. Uh, That's right. A, an episode on Arabic saga. Or grab the graphic novel. One could. See, I'm, I, I'm helping. One could. Uh, whatever floats your boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, more important here is the depiction of Ailda Strong. It's, it's highly literary in its execution. He's clearly a type. Uh, but we once again gain that cultural attitude towards slaves. It's worth paying attention yeah. to. Uh, his desperation to escape slavery leads him into a dangerous game that costs him his life. He's, um, he's un- it's understood that he is not content with his lot. Right? There's no fiction here about a happy slave. Um, his desperation uh, allows him to enter the game because he has nothing left to lose. Right? He, yeah. he already feels himself to be in desperate circumstances, despite the fact that he is uh, regarded as a very capable servant. Mm-hmm. Uh, even death at the hands of Bjorn and his brothers seems to be preferable to continuing his life as a slave.
1: Yeah. And I think making matters worse is that Ail's life means absolutely nothing to his master, Thorbrand, and his sons. No,
0: absolutely not. Uh, They send him off to what they realize one way or another is going to be his death. Even if he manages to kill one of these guys by surprise, there's still two more trained warriors standing right there uh, who have just lost their brother and will want revenge. Uh, And so, yeah, there's really no chance that he's going to succeed in what he wants, but he may succeed in what Thorbrand wants, and that's enough for him to take the gamble of losing a slave.
1: That's right. Yeah, so Ales, figu- uh, Ale's failure cost them nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And this actually reminds me of a story that we uh, spent some time on in our study of the saga of Ale Scott, the Grimson. Yeah. Um, this is a different Ale, not the same one we were just talking uh, about. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the problems with the sagas is a lot of names repeat themselves and you got to mm-hmm. keep track of it all. But in that saga, uh, we see a wealthy landowners, uh, many we- wealthy landowners, using slaves as pawns in these petty squabbles and games of honor that they have between each other. Give us one example. One example is uh, Thorstein Ailsen and his feud with Stenar. This is later in the saga. Right to the end.
0: Uh, Stenar is the son of Ael's old friend. Uh, He likes to let his cattle graze in a field that kind of abuts and overlaps with a field that belongs to Ael and his son Thorstein.
1: Yeah, and it's particularly rich pasture land. Mm -hmm. Um, And while Thorstein is a very reasonable man, Stenar is not. And Thorstein spots Steinar's cattle grazing down in the pasture, and he's rather displeased about this because he wants his own uh, cattle to to graze there. Mm -hmm. And by the time he gets there, all that good grass is gone. So when it happens again the next spring, he rides over to Steinar's property, and he simply asks him (coughs) to stop grazing those cattle on pasture lands that don't belong to him.
0: Now, if you aren't particularly familiar with the sagas, a lot of feuds start this way. A minor disagreement over pasture land, over who owns a sheep, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so in this case, as in most cases, it starts small and snowballs into a lot of blood being spilt before it's over. Yeah. And Steinar
1: hears all of this, but he doesn't care at all about Thorstein's requests. In fact, he calls in one of his slaves, uh, a guy named Grani, and he tells him to simply guard these cattle and make sure that the cattle graze in that same pasture, no matter what Thorstein might have said. So again, next year, when Thorstein sees this, he rides out to chase the cattle away. And Grani, the slave, does his best to herd these cattle away as quickly as he can. But Thorstein has had enough. So he rides up behind Grani, and they, he arrives and gets him right when he's near the gate of the wall marking Stannar's property, and he kills him. And then he pulls the wall down over the top of the body and rides home. And, oh, and, uh, and we
0: can assume at this point that we're either going to end up with something called either Grani's Wall or Grani's Gate.
1: Yeah, it's Grani's Gate. Grani's Gate. Yes. How'd you guess? Mm-hmm. I, read the, I read the saga.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, right. Dead slave equals dead slave place name. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it's a snowdrift or a farm where an avalanche happens uh, or a shepherd killed for grazing cattle in the wrong pasture... Uh, a dead slave helps to explain how a place gets its name. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's Icelandic Toponomy 101.
1: Yeah. I didn't realize they had a class in Icelandic toponymy that spent so much time on this stuff,
0: you but should, it's nice. You study more. Okay.
1: I have uh, attended an excellent lecture by Dr. Chris Callow from the University of Birmingham. Um, since I'm from Mississippi, I should clarify Birmingham, not Alabama, but in England, um, on this exact subject. <laughs> oh. They know. <laughs> I, in the south, you have to clarify. Right, because, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, But now, uh, to wrap up this example... You um, didn't wrap it up, are you done? No, because we're, we're almost there, but Steinar okay. still isn't satisfied with how things are going. Mm-hmm. Right? He's lost one slave, but it was just Grani, and Grani was a, was a shepherd. So, in the wintertime, he is visiting a place called Sneifelstrand, which is nearby, and he spots this huge slave whose name is Thraunder. And while his owner is reluctant to part with such a large and impressive slave... He is able to sell him to Steinar for one and a half price, the average slave. So Steinar is bigger, so he's worth a little bit more. And so when spring rolls around, Steinar puts a very large axe. It says it's got an axe head about an L long, so really, really big axe. He puts it in Thrander's hand and he tells him to kill anyone who tries to stop him from grazing those cattle in that disputed pasture.
0: Right. And of course, he reminds him to tie his shoes as well. No, he doesn't. But funny you should say that. <laughs> uh yeah no i i, I read the saga uh, yeah. and so we know how to to yeah yeah we're setting it so, up
1: we're setting it up but but yeah so long story short Thrandir is bigger and stronger than thorstein and thorstein knows this and Thrandir knows this and they have this cute little exchange but when they're exchanging word and the tension is building thorstein takes the opportunity to plant his axe in the back of Thrandir's neck when Thrandir bends down to tie his shoe right before the battle is supposed to begin And then he heaps some stones over the body and he rides home again.
0: And what do they name after Thrond? Is there a hill or a valley or a shoelace? No
1: mention of it. Not every single dead slave gets their name (laughs) on the map, John.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a pity. Uh, So uh, once more, we have two wealthy landowners getting into a struggle, showing an absolute disregard for the lives of the men whose status falls so far beneath their own. They are tools to be used, not lives to be preserved. Mm -hmm. Uh, The slaves appear in this saga to be eager to do Steinar's bidding, but they don't just seem to be as miserable as Ail the Strong in the previous example. Right? They're, they're, they're just confident in their ability to handle themselves mm-hmm. in a physical confrontation with their social betters. Yeah. Uh, it's, but it's presented not as a mark of sort of warriorly confidence, but as a mark of pride and foolishness.
1: Right. And at their core, I think both of these examples show that in Icelandic society, a slave's life was worth very little which made them useful pawns in these games that the wealthy landowners like to play against each other.
0: Although we do should say that uh, Stenard does bring a lawsuit against Thorsten for the yeah. killing of the two slaves. Uh, we, we even get another reference to the law code at that moment. Uh, mm-hmm. For, this was the law. When thralls of anyone were slain, and the fine for the thrall was not brought before the owner before the third sunrise, the punishment for this was lesser outlawry. Uh, lesser outlawry in Icelandic law means a sentence of three years' exile uh, from the island. Uh but because Thorsten killed two slaves, uh, the so charges stack, and he's being threatened with double out, double minor outlawry, which is the equivalent to a sentence of full outlawry, which is for life. Yeah, usually, yeah,
1: outlawry means for life. Um, and this sets up Ail's appearance at court and more drama. Uh, just like in the Saga, the slaves serve as useful literary devices, right? But from the
0: historian's perspective, I think we can dis- disregard most of most of what we just right, I mean, about. it's important to keep reminding everyone that uh, the sagas are written in the 13th and 14th centuries, mm-hmm. uh, some a period after slavery has been uh, uh, outlawed in Iceland and ended as a practice, and hundreds of years after the events being described. So yeah. authors are sort of imagining. The lives of slaves from a temporal distance that we have to keep in mind.
1: Yeah. But both, uh, but we have to remember that cultural memory is rather lengthy, especially in Iceland. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we can't disregard is the preservation of an attitude towards slaves that rings, I think, rather authentic. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't discount that. I think the oral stories behind the sagas, be they regional folk tales or poems, that are preserving something of Iceland's past, even if it's just their attitudes. And we should also remember that the Graugas, that is the earliest surviving law codes that uh, come out of Iceland. name means Grey Goose. Grey Goose, yeah. And they're they're written down around the 12th century. Um, They preserve laws concerning slaves that support a lot of what we see in the sagas, both in terms of the attitudes towards slaves and the legal rights uh, of the slaves and their masters.
0: Right, exactly. The, The Graugas are actually written down closer to the date of the sagas composition than to the era of slavery in Iceland. They're passed down orally for centuries before they're ever written down. Uh, but they do preserve a history of the laws. And mm-hmm. from what we can tell, the laws seem to work similarly over a long period of time. Uh, so whether we're talking about Bravey or Ail the Strong or the slaves killed by Thorsten, it's clear that there are always repercussions of some kind for killing slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorsten is threatened with outlawry uh, for killing Grani and Thran, uh, although he manages to avoid outlawry uh, mm-hmm. mainly because, once again, having a rich dad is a good thing it's, when you're in legal trouble. Yeah. Uh, we already saw in Volsunga Saga that even a powerful man like Sigi can be outlawed for killing a slave.
1: Yes, and I, I always pause over this moment when teaching Saga of the Volsungs, especially about Braithi's death and the outlawry of Sigi. Mm-hmm. We have to be careful how we read a moment like that. Because on the one hand, it's clear that everybody really liked Braithi, I think. that That much mm-hmm. is clear. The text tells us that he was respected. And he was thought well as uh, he was thought of being as good if not better than many of the people in the community who weren't slaves mm-hmm. So students will sometimes read that and they'll think to themselves that uh, that Sigi is outlawed because of Brady's
0: value as a human being as a person right well and technically that is right uh, but not in the sense that Brady has the same rights as a free man mm-hmm. or even an official standing within the eyes of the community or the law like I said we do. I don't think there's any reason to think that the men who their slaves to certain doom or who claim legal compensation for their deaths are doing so because they care so much about their slaves as humans, so much as property. Yes. Uh, th- there are so many examples in the literature of this disregard for the lives of those at the bottom of the social hierarchy. Yeah that one, we have to assume that it reflects an historical pattern, two, it becomes very disturbing at some point. Yeah,
1: exactly. Th- though I would argue that Brady clearly has both reputation and honor in the community, mm-hmm. despite his humble status. Sure. So that's there. Uh, but there is the suggestion that he is valued uh, and well-regarded, even if only for the purposes of contrast in the text, right? But as you know, the bigger issue here in this particular situation and all the ones that we've covered so far is Brady's value, the slave's value as a person to Scalzi the wealthy master, right? We've already referenced the Graugas, the earliest Icelandic law codes. And within them, we find a whole section devoted to the legal procedures that are associated with the killing and wounding of slaves. And that's where we see the law stating the penalty for killing another man's slave or bondwoman is lesser outlawry. It's exile from the district for, for or the country for a period of three years. And this is, of course, what happens to Sigi, right? Though he has no interest in returning after establishing his own kingdom, he was outlawed for killing
0: a slave. Right, and the Gragas uh, does outline some important regulations regarding slaves that we should also talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, a slain Thrall's settlement value would be determined by five neighbors of the prosecutor, uh, that is, friends of the slave's owner and those closest to him. Which doesn't seem quite fair. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, so if the slave is killed and his master is present, then the slave can be avenged right there on the killer, just as you would avenge anyone else who is part of your household, Mm -hmm. Uh, but not after they leave the site of the killing. Uh, you right. cannot uh, take blood vengeance at a later time for this killing. So you could for a freedman.
1: You'll see some examples in the sagas of this. For, for example, in the saga, um, some slaves are sent out to burn this guy's house down and kill him mm-hmm. inside, hopefully. But they're caught in the act and they're killed right there. And so when the legal dispute comes up after that, um, one of the reasons that there's no prosecution is by law well, they were caught in the act, right?
0: Right. But then a, on a technicality, because they were moved about 100 yards away from the house... Uh, the lawyer for the defense is able to argue that, in fact, they were moved before they were killed and that, therefore, it was not a valid killing. Uh, the the sagas was,
1: are great. Yeah. I mean, it's so yeah. they're so intricately written and they uh, they yeah. dwell on these obscure little details from the law codes. Um, it's, it's really a lot. of
0: Lawyers fun. were essentially quarterbacks. Right. I mean People yeah. are sort of like trading stats about them, arguing over who is the best one under certain circumstances. People really got into their lawyers in, mm-hmm. in Iceland. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so um, it's it's true that if a man injures another man's slave uh, or kills another man's slave, uh, the master is awarded six ounces of silver, but the slave is also awarded silver as well, three pieces of silver for injury.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really important detail and a great distinction from a lot of other slave codes, right, that the slave is given some kind of compensation, half of what the owner gets, but he's still given something, Um I think this is true in most places throughout medieval Scandinavia. If we're trying to get a sense of Viking Age slavery and the rules around it, mm-hmm. this is something that was was pretty common. Not only that, but slaves who practice particular crafts, uh, whether they're blacksmiths or, or potters or or other kinds of things, they go to the market and sell their goods, and their masters are entitled to the, the larger portion of the profits there, but the slaves themselves are actually given a small portion of that profit. And so... Over time, they would actually be able to build up their own little income, Mm -hmm. and this could at least make it possible for debtor slaves to pay off their debt and get out of slavery. It could also make it possible for captive slaves
0: to purchase their own freedom. We should actually talk about manumission and freedmen at some point. Um, Probably don't have time during the talk, but maybe during Mm Q&A. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh,
1: I doubt there will be time for that, but <laughs> okay, <laughs> but back to Braithi and the question of his his rights, right? Braithi has the right not to be killed by another man in Icelandic law. I think that much is clear, yeah. uh, but the Gragas do go on to say that if a master kills his own slave, he's under no penalty unless he kills him in an established holy season or during Lent. So... There you go. Mm-hmm. The penalty for killing your own slave during a holy season is lesser outlawry, but there's a stipulation that makes it easy to get out of. You would only be prosecuted, you would only be penalized if the local chieftain is willing to prosecute you. And chances are very good if he's your local chieftain, you're good friends with him, mm-hmm. and unless he's got a bone to pick with you, you're going to be fine.
0: Right, and that sets up for another rather disturbing example from Aesir saga.
1: Yeah, if we want to go back to the saga of Aesir, Scott Grimson, uh, where Thorstein and and Steinar right. were fighting. So. Um, yeah, this is a good one. We, we can't dwell on it long, but it does illustrate, I think, really nicely this law about kind of abusing your own slaves or, or right. harming your own right. slaves.
0: It also illustrates the, well, we'll explain the example and then we'll tell you what it illustrates. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Ail Scott LeGrimson is one of saga literature's most notorious and complicated characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, is, he gets into a lot of fights. He hurts a lot of people. hurts a lot of feelings uh, during his life. But he comes by it honestly. Um, his father, uh, Scott LeGrim, is the same way. He's a berserk. His grandfather, Kveldolf, whose name literally means night wolf, is thought to be a shape changer. Uh, And he's kind of noble during the day, but dangerous, moody, and violent at night.
1: Right. And so Kveldolf's history and all this stuff is not terribly important to our story, except to say that both Scott Legrim and Ale, they come by their kind of moodiness rather honestly. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, So early in Ale's life, when he's a boy of about 12 uh, he's playing ball with his father uh, and sort of his friend Thor, and the, they're getting sort of wrestling, friendly wrestling matches as they play ball. And nearby, a slave woman named Thorgird Brock is uh, watching.
1: Yeah. Now, Thorgard Brock is the interesting character for us here. Uh, though she's clearly referenced uh, and referred to as a slave, it's also noted that she was Ail's foster mother, right? And she was his wet nurse. So she's a woman who's been by his side, raising him from the moment of his birth. So in other words, she's got a significant place in this household and definitely in Ail's heart.
0: Right. Now, at the moment, this scene appears heartwarming, but you can probably guess it's going to turn badly. Uh, So uh, as time goes on, as evening falls while they're playing, uh, the boys start to get the better of Scott Lagrim, who's growing a little bit weary. Uh, But at some moment, as the sun comes down below the horizon, his dark side comes out. Uh, He becomes more violent. He becomes more aggressive. He picks up Thor, the friend, and dashes him to the ground, killing him. Yeah. Uh, as his rage grows, he then grabs his own son, Ail, and lifts him up. Uh, but before he can do anything, Thordred Brock uh, rushes over. Uh, and at this point, we're told Thordred Brock is a large and imposing woman who's as strong as a man and versed in the arts of magic. Which are all really interesting details, but mm-hmm. uh, but go on. What uh, happens to her? Thordred pushes Scott Lagrim aside and yells at him for attacking his own son. Uh, and while this allows Ail to break away from his berserking father, Skatlegrim now turns his rage against Thorger. Uh, she runs off to get away from him, but he follows after her all the way down to the waters of Gordorferr, to the, to the sea. Uh, with nowhere to go, Thorger leaps into the water uh, and begins to swim away. Uh, as she puts distance between herself and her master, Skatlegrim picks up a large boulder and flings it after her. Uh, it smashes into her shoulders, and as the saga tells us, neither the woman nor the boulder came up again. Yeah,
1: and I don't mean, mean I mean, this is a weird spot to uh, suggest tourism, but uh, should you visit Iceland, <laughs> and we highly recommend that you do, um, you can visit Borgarnes, and mm-hmm. uh, right by the Saga Museum that they have there uh, is the shore, you're on the shores of the fjord, and that is supposedly where this event took place. Mm-hmm. Um, they even have a monument there uh, to Thorgerd Brak, memorializing this particular, uh, this particular scene. Ah, uh, quite romantic,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and of course, the inlet is known as uh, Brakar Sound. Yeah, no it's, surprise there. <laughs> yeah, it's named after her, right? Uh, incidentally, do you uh, remember the name of Ail's favorite uh, and most successful daughter?
0: Yeah, Thorgerd. Uh, yeah, she named after Thorgerd Brak. Yeah,
1: yeah. I never noticed. In mm-hmm. fact, just in preparing for this uh, lecture today. Ale's um, favorite daughter who is in the saga that we're currently covering on the podcast her name is Thorgert and it never occurred to me he named it I usually you would name a daughter after your mother or other people in your family he names this his favorite daughter after the slave woman who raised him
0: mm-hmm. it's kind of cool yeah no it's great um, and if, if Thorgo's drowning wasn't horrific enough for you Ale uh, of course being also a kind of moody slightly berserk figure uh, feels that it's time to, to even the score um, at night uh, that same evening, he returns home. Remember, he's 12 years old uh, and arrives late for dinner with his parents. Uh, and at the table, or at least nearby the table, is a thrall who's described as the manager of Scott Lagrim's estate, his brutti, the, the, the most privileged figure. Uh, the man who takes care of the farm's finances and manages the workers. Yeah, He's also Scott Lagrim's favorite servant. Yeah, I think they could see where this is yeah. going. Uh, right? Ale walks into the room and, without saying a word, kills poor, the poor brutti in front of Scott Lagrim with a single blow. Uh, then he sits down at the table to enjoy his supper. Uh, and there you go. Yeah. I mean, what do you say after a moment like that? It's past the skier? Yes. Uh, it's it's got to be a damn awkward dinner because the corpse is still there. Um, yeah. no, we're told explicitly that nobody acknowledges what just happened. They just kind of leave the body there throughout the meal. Uh, and you have to imagine the thought process of the other servants who would eventually have been told to go in and clear away the body after the meal was completed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that callousness toward the dead slave or using a servant's death as a way of sort of evening the score uh, with your father. Uh, that's the, the, uh, the point. Right? That's uh, mm-hmm. the, There is no lawsuit. It's within a single family. So there really can't be. Yeah. There's no persecu- persecution. There's no penalty of any kind for either one of them. Right? They, mm-hmm. There's no other family to go after. And so there's no punishment at all. Yeah. Um, the, the law codes uh, are reflected in the sagas. And that is the custom of the Viking Age. Um, There is no idea of the state as a victim in the breaking of a law. Uh, It's the family that is violated. And since the family in this case is committing these sort of crimes, if they are crimes, within the household, there's really no one to go after. And so the slaves receive no justice. That's right.
1: And all of this simply reinforces the fact that slaves were a part of daily life in Scandinavia throughout Mm -hmm. the early Middle Ages. We're focusing on Iceland here, but similar laws and situations existed in Norway
0: and in Sweden and in Denmark. And if we can go by those law codes and go by those texts, uh, the life of slaves outside of Iceland in other parts of Scandinavia may have been even worse. Uh, the But okay, we've scratched the surface of the legal status. Uh, we've talked about prevailing attitudes of slaves in Iceland. Yeah. Um, what do we know about the number of slaves mm. in a given household? Yeah. Uh, Brevi, as far as I can remember... Uh, was the only slave mentioned in the saga of the Songs. yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Uh, so we have to assume that Skadi and Siggy have a lot more slaves who aren't being mentioned. I we know so. that Skallagrim, we just talked about, uh, a wealthy man with lots of land in settlement-age Iceland, had at least two slaves, Thorgird and the Brutti. Uh, mm-hmm. But of course, the number was probably far greater, since he had a Brutti, to manage the work and finances of the entire facility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The sagas give an impression that just about every significant farm has multiple servants, multiple slaves.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really good question, and it's a difficult one to answer if we're being really honest. Again, the record on the existence of slaves and the realities of their daily life in the Viking Age is largely silent um, and mostly built on speculative reconstructions from sources that come to us from the 12th and 13th centuries, uh, like the law codes and the sagas. Mm -hmm. I think we'd have an easier time laying out what life was like for slaves among the Rus simply because we have accounts of foreign travelers like Ahmed ibn Rusta and Ahmed ibn Fatlan who actually described their encounters with the Viking Rus in the 9th and 10th, early 10th centuries. Mm -hmm. Um, But the record on what was actually happening in the real history of Iceland between the 9th and the 11th centuries was just not available to us, which is why we have to make some guesses some educated guesses based on these later sources and yeah. on archaeological surveys of farmsteads and estates from the period.
0: You're kind of talking around the question. That's, that's what we cool. do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Now I'm not dodging. I'm just trying to be very, very clear here on the difficulty one encounters when trying to reconstruct the realities in Viking Age Iceland or Viking Age Scandinavia more broadly. Mm-hmm. But here's what I think we can say. And this is supported by the best research available on the subject of slavery in medieval Scandinavia. Um, As heavily involved as the Vikings were in the slave trade from the 9th to the 11th centuries, the number of slaves on the average Scandinavian farm or in the average Scandinavian household must have been relatively small. This would have been especially true for Iceland because the conditions there are simply so difficult that any property owner had to seriously consider the cost of keeping another mouth to feed around through these long, long winters. Right. Yeah. And we
0: actually see some evidence of that kind of difficult decision making regarding livestock, even in the sodas. Yeah. Uh, Before each winter, there's a very careful assessment of how much food, how much fodder is available uh, and calculating out how many living things you can get through the winter with the supplies that you have. And of Mm -hmm. course, that's a calculation that changes because killing uh, an animal in order to reduce the amount of fodder used provides you with more food, uh, but then gives you one less animal in the spring that is going to then reproduce. And so it's all it's a very careful calculation has to be done. Yeah. Uh, And uh, while you may have been able to uh, uh, keep a few slaves around, you have to think about one more burden over the course of the winter. Uh, And you can see how that mentality might shift to the problem of like how many slaves is it worth keeping when you have to think about how to keep them alive. Yeah.
1: And. I, I think under normal circumstances, those kind of conversations never really needed to happen. Right. Um, Jesse Byock has observed in his study on the subject of slavery in uh, Viking Age Iceland that while chieftains and wealthy landowners like Scott may have been able to sustain a small workforce of slaves, uh, some landless workers and tenant farmers on their property. To the average Icelander of the Viking Age, who isn't really represented in the written record very much, supporting slaves would have been a greater burden than a benefit to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, Paul Gelsinger, in his book, uh, Icelandic Enterprise, which is a really interesting one, uh, he comes to the same conclusion. He says that slave labor, quote, presented problems to owners. A thrall as a valuable human property had to be provided with food, with clothing, and shelter. Yet his labor might not be commensurate with these expenses because he was reasonably certain of minimal support that was not likely to be greatly improved, no matter how hard he
0: worked. So why am I going to work hard? Well, and this is also why we get characters like the Strong, right? willing yeah. to do anything to uh, free themselves from the bonds of slavery. Exactly.
1: So Iceland, more than any other Scandinavian country, was simply too remote, farming too difficult, and the population too small to allow for a true slave society to develop. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't slaves. There most assuredly were slaves in Iceland. But they would have been fewer than the sagas would lead
0: us to believe. Right. The sagas are focused on the wealthiest landowners. Yeah. Uh, so it, that's not terribly surprising given the nature of the medieval Icelanders' the interest in genealogy and land ownership. And the fact that these sagas were mostly written by descendants of well-off families mm-hmm. with an interest in their great-grandparents' activities. Uh, so these are the men who would have slaves. Right? The, 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 the few at the top of the economic ladder are the ones who would have most of the slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, men who would have brought those customs from Norway or Sweden or Denmark or what have you, and then adopted them uh, again in Iceland when they settled. Yeah. And here again, I think we need to be cautious
1: how far we're willing to go with the evidence that's available to mm-hmm. us. Uh, what does seem clear, though, is that slaves throughout Scandinavia but especially in Iceland and in Norway, were not necessarily the labor force they were in more developed slave societies. So, contrary to what we tend to see in the sagas and what we might want to read into the law codes, most farmers simply would not have had slaves. Slaves were a prestige property. And while Viking raiders were notorious, as Neil Price reminds us, for ravaging the shores of the British Isles and the Baltic regions and capturing humans for trade, in all honesty, most people taken in raids would have been ransomed or brought to market and sold as quickly as possible to uh, to people in areas that uh, actually were using slaves and had a use for slave labor. Um, that wouldn't be in, in Scandinavia mm-hmm. necessarily. Uh, maybe in southern Sweden, but otherwise otherwise, not really. Most of the time, these captives, captives would be converted uh, to silver, into gold, into other more practical material commodities as quickly as possible. Things that can be loaded on the ships that don't need to be fed, mm-hmm. right? But I think it is worth noting that female slaves were often brought home as household workers and as concubines. Mm-hmm. Uh, though those two are not mutually exclusive. This is supported in nearly all of the sources, whether Eastern or Western.
0: And it brings up an important issue, which I think should probably be, we're low on time, so I think probably should be our last section. Sure. Um, we're talking about uh, sorry. Female slaves, you want yeah, to talk about, yeah, I'll talk about this. Um, okay. So going back to our terminology discussion, while thrall is usually used to refer to an enslaved man. Uh the term Ambaut was used for enslaved women. Yeah. Uh like Thrall, it seems to mean something like servant. But unlike Thrall, Ambaut is a borrowing from Gaelic, mm-hmm. which is perhaps not surprising.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like um the many female slaves in Iceland and Norway they they come from Celtic territories, so it's not surprising that the term for female slave might have a Gaelic origin of some kind. And uh, they have a variety of roles to fill, just as the male slaves have a variety of roles to fill. For example, they have a degia. A degia, for example, is a female slave spelled like this. And their responsibility was mainly baking, meaning mm-hmm. the, the bakers in the household.
0: And we have an example this. of this from uh, the Thrymskid, uh, mm-hmm. which is an epic poem in which uh, Thor and Loki dress up as women in order to uh, retrieve Thor's hammer from a giant. It's a kind of convoluted story, but it's worth reading if you're not Definitely familiar.
1: worth reading that story. Uh,
0: In this case, Loki uh, transforms himself to become Thor's ambaut, uh, a word that seems to mean handmade in this situation. Uh, And as silly as the story is, it reflects a reality of the Viking's world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Indeed, several burials from the Viking Age feature wealthy and respected figures being buried with an individual of much lower status, be they slave or servant. Mm -hmm. Sadly, the slave is often found with their hands bound uh, and sometimes with their heads cut off, Mm -hmm. uh, as well, suggesting... Uh, that they were uh, sacrificed. Uh, It's gruesome, but it's not, unfortunately, terribly surprising. Uh, Let's not forget these stories shared by Ahmed ibn Fadlan and Ahmed ibn Rusta, uh, who both describe funerals for noblemen among the Rus. Uh, In the former, it's a ship burning. Mm -hmm. In the latter, it's more like a ship burial. Uh, But in both cases, a slave either volunteers or is volunteered to undergo a ritualistic death, in order to accompany the Lord into the afterlife.
1: Yeah. And the scene from Ibn Fadlan's travel narrative is particularly disturbing for all that it has to say about that female slave's final days, even though she volunteers or appears to have volunteered uh, for the honor of joining her master in death. But the path to get there for her is is truly awful from a modern perspective. Right.
0: but Instead of wallowing in that one in particular, I want to bring us back to the sagas a little yeah. bit uh, and revisit the story of a character we talked about recently on the podcast mm-hmm. uh, in the coverage of Laxdal saga. Uh, it's a useful example of how a, a woman captured in a raid uh, in, in, Ice- in Ireland mm-hmm. uh, and then subjected to slavery in Iceland uh, might have her life play out. Yeah, we're talking about Melkorka, right? Yes, yeah, Um uh, Melkorka mm-hmm. is a woman whose existence is corroborated by La Nama book, Uh It's a 12th century historical document, uh, at least a pseudo-historical document, mm-hmm. detailing the settlement of Iceland, uh, covering who settled where, how much land they had, who their children were. Uh, And it also includes the story of Melcorka that's fleshed out in Laxdal Saga. From what we can tell, the only real surprise of Melcorka's story is that she turns out to be royalty of a sort. Uh, Her father is King Myrkjartan, one of the regional rulers of Ireland. Otherwise, her career, as far as we can tell, is probably fairly typical of many women who were seized in raids. Mm -hmm. She is kidnapped at the age of 15 uh, and taken away from Ireland by men whose language she did not speak. Uh, She chooses to remain silent among her captors. And so as a mute prisoner, she's transported across northern Europe by ship. She's most likely handed over to slave traders and brought to the slave markets, uh, where she's eventually sold to a wealthy merchant named Gili, known as Gili Ingersky, or Gili the Russian, yeah. uh, in an association of slavers with those of the Rus. Yeah. He's also called
1: uh, Gili the Russian because he has a big fur hat in the style oh, of oh, the that's Rus. Right, yes. Yeah. You lived in
0: Russia for a while. I did. Do you, you have a fur hat?
1: Uh, yeah, you there, yeah, I had a fur hats, <laughs> uh, but I didn't live in the 10th century. But, but modern yeah. times. But so you I did. you did have a fur hat when you were there. I did have a fur hat, nice. I still have that fur hat somewhere. Oh. Um, even though it was more than twenty years ago, it's still in good good shape. Um, it's called a shopka, and in the markets uh, there, you you can find lots of cool fur hats made of a variety of animals, and they're very very warm. Like I didn't better, know you
0: were going to say you had one <laughs> better
1: than a knit cap. It's it's really good, but that's not important. My shapka is oh, yeah. not part of the thing. Um, what is important here is the characterization of Gili as a Rus, or at least pretending to be a Rus, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and while the history of slaves in Iceland is relatively silent. Like I said before, the history of the Rus and their heavy involvement in the slave trade throughout Europe, especially seizing women, uh, that's very, very well documented. Uh, Ibn Fatlan, for example, tells us that the Rus are accompanied everywhere they go by beautiful female slaves for trade with merchants. So I think it's fair to assume that this is part of Melkorka's story as well.
0: All right, so Melkorka is brought to Scandinavia by Gilly the Russian, whether he got her at a market somewhere closer to Ireland or in a slave market in the Baltic, which is the most likely scenario. She's with him for an indeterminate amount of time, and eventually Gilly and his slaves attend a royal procession to the Breno Islands in what is modern-day Sweden. Uh, this is a big assemblage of wealthy men. It's known in advance, and so uh, merchants congregate on this spot, knowing that there are going to be plenty of wealthy customers. Yeah. Uh, and at that gathering, an Icelander named Hoskuld Dalla visits Gilly's booth and buys Melkorka as a concubine.
1: Yeah. So a couple of observations on this this uh, this scene. First I think it's important to acknowledge that Huscold is he is married his mm-hmm. wife is in Iceland and he is purchasing Melkorka as a sexual slave. This I think it's fair to say was exceedingly common in Viking Age Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. In fact most of the sources that comment on the Viking slave trade often by the Rus but not exclusively the Norwegians and Danes get involved as well. They note that women and young girls are the primary target in slave hunting and most commonly the type of person that is taken in their raids. The men are killed off um, and then the women are captured and taken and then redistributed in all kinds of places. Um, It's widely believed that most of the wealthy men in Iceland, Norway, Denmark, and Sweden would have had a wife and at least one concubine in their household, not to mention any other slave uh, female that they want to
0: um, uh, use in that way. Right, right. Emphasis on wealthy men here. Not wealthy. Not standard practice for the entire culture. But very much so. The elite
1: yeah. Men. Now, the truth of this, again, is preserved in the law codes and communications, very interesting communications between Scandinavian bishops and the Pope during that conversion period where the right. bishops are trying to get the Pope to explain how to help with these really crazy uh, Icelanders yeah. or Norwegians who have multiple wives and concubines, and sometimes the priests even do it. So yeah, it's, I mean, that's a harsh reality, but you had another
0: observation you wanted
1: to make. Yeah, just a quick one. I think notice that uh, that Melkorka is on her third or fourth remove from her original abduction. She's yes. being moved around a lot of places. So, what we're seeing in the saga is a representation of a thriving trade in captured slaves right. for Viking Age um,
0: Icelanders. Right, and because she's maintained this guy as a mute figure. No one at this point involved knows anything about her origin, uh, mm-hmm. where she comes from, or who she may have been. Uh, and that, that night, Hoskuld takes her to bed, which is a direct quote. Uh, the sagas are often surprisingly euphemistic about these things. Yeah. Uh, that takes her to bed is about as graphic as they get. Uh, he then brings her back to Iceland, where his wife, Jorun is less than thrilled with Hoskuld's impulse purchase. Makes sense. Uh, in sort of a pathetic attempt to smooth things over, Hoskuld then makes Melkorka Jorun's servant. I love that move. It's Uh, like, no, I got her for you. Yeah. She's going to help you out. It Uh, makes your life easier. Which works only until it becomes obvious that Melkorka is pregnant.
1: Yeah. There's an exchange between Hoskold and Joran about Mm Melkorka. When Joran demands to know her name, like, who is this hussy you brought over here from wherever she's from? And Hoskold says something strange. He says, "Um, you're probably not going to believe this. Uh, You'll think I'm mocking you, but I I don't know her name. Right. And Joran says,
0: Really? Unless the stories I've been hearing about your time together are lies, you must have spoken to her enough to learn her name.
1: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if anyone's wondering how uh, higher-born women of Iceland felt about the whole concubinage system, here's a a little suggestion. There's an answer. Uh,
0: Now, to wrap up Melkorka's story, uh, she eventually gives birth to a boy who's named Olaf. Uh, Eventually becomes known as Olaf the Peacock. Mm -hmm. Uh, It isn't until Hoskold finds her talking to her son one day that it's finally discovered that she can speak uh, and that she's been choosing not to. Her muteness is a form of defense, maybe even rebellion against her circumstances. Uh, There are other deaf and mute people in the sagas, including one woman who carves rune sticks to communicate with her brother. Uh, But Malkorka doesn't learn workarounds because, first, she probably doesn't know the language for a long time, but also because she doesn't want to communicate with her captors.
1: That's right. The saga doesn't give us enough information to work out her exact motives with any confidence, but I think that's a safe guess right there. And the assumption of most Icelandic elites would have led them to undervalue a slave as socially unimportant. It's not something that we would worry
0: about. And that would be doubly the case for an umbout. Right, and so Melchorges chose an, an excellent choice for her camouflage. Right? She's pretending to be mute, which fits into existing class prejudices about the value of slave speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, though, it turns out that language and communication are very important to her. She teaches her son to speak Irish as well as Norse. Yeah. Uh, which is another interesting bit of resistance to assimilation. Yeah. And once the secret's out, though,
1: Joran is even less pleased about Melkorka's presence right. on the farm. She's very aware of the potential for her own uh, children to be overshadowed by the daughter and grandson of an Irish king, assuming that that's all true, mm-hmm. right? She even attacks Melkorka at some point, and Melkorka responds by hitting her in the face. So ultimately, Haskell realizes that this isn't going to work out and he can't keep Melkorka in the house anymore. And so his solution is to set her up on a small farm, a little house on the edge of his property. And that gives her a newfound independence. She's living out there mostly by herself with her son and raising him and teaching him uh, both Norse and Irish. And it's a good situation for her, but it's not exactly freedom.
0: Right, right. And the sort of third act of Melkorka's story is about her carving out a place for herself in Iceland. Uh, Teaching Olaf Irish is one of the choices she makes about where to adjust to and where to resist the cultural expectations of a new home. Uh, Eventually, she sends Olaf back to Ireland to reconnect with her family, Uh, and Melkorka agrees to marry a local man named Thorbjorn Pockmarked in exchange for the money to fund Olaf's trip. It's sort of a final irony that in order to reconnect with Ireland, Melkorka has to sell the small amount of freedom she's gained and lean into the commodification of her life
1: yeah she eventually has a second son his name is lambi uh with this new husband and through melcorca's sons her story is about how captured women especially those from ireland scotland and other celtic ter- territories in the british isles they actually become part of the icelandic culture and even how they shape that culture in fact dna studies of icelandic set uh, of icelandic settlers and their relationship to the genetic makeup of modern Icelanders, actually suggests that Iceland was a good mix of Scandinavian and Celtic settlers. Now, whether those Celts were largely female slaves or not is really a matter of uh, further research and debate. It's ongoing. But one recent study of the DNA characteristics of those early settlers did show rather conclusively that those with purely Scandinavian ancestry during the Viking Age, those pure Scandinavian bloodlines, Um, they were much more successful in passing on their genetic material uh, through the ages compared with those who had Celtic ancestry. This implies that whether or not the Celtic settlers of Iceland were slaves, they at least belonged to a different and lower class compared to their fellow immigrants who were coming from Scandinavia.
0: Right, And the story of Melkorka teaching her son Irish uh, corresponds to many other stories about the raising of children, uh, the degree Mm -hmm. to which it was that women, many of them non-Norwegians, Uh, who were uh, teaching and raising successful generations of Icelanders. Uh, That has huge implications for the future of the island. Uh, For one thing, it It means that Iceland is less culturally homogenous than its literature sometimes seems to want it to be.
1: Yeah, which is something that modern Iceland has recognized and they've been incorporating it into their reconstruction of their past. Absolutely. If you go and visit their museums, this
0: is now part of the story. Right, and that's very recent. That's Mm -hmm. really on the last couple of decades that that started to become the case. Yeah. Uh, Back to the issue of slaves in Iceland. Uh, Melkorka's experiences, we should say, are treated very matter-of-factly throughout the saga. Uh, As compelling as they may be to us, They're treated as peripheral to the story by the author. Um, Her story gets narrative attention mainly because she's an important link between the royalty of Ireland and the main family at the center of the saga. Her bloodline brings royalty into that line. Uh, There's a tale of trauma and dislocation there. But like so many things in saga writing, it's just there. Um, It's it's important if you decide it is. uh, But it doesn't require that we respect or even notice Melchorca's hardships.
1: That's right, and you said narrative attention, Mm -hmm. and I think that's an important consideration as
0: well. We're gonna start that now. (laughs) Yeah, uh, we're theoretically talking about history here, but the sagas are always working both sides of the sort of literature history divide. Yeah, Uh, There's a fair amount of literary intervention going on in the story, and scholars have demonstrated now, this story in particular, uh, it participates in both Irish and Icelandic traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this afternoon, in fact, we'll be talking about Asla, um, uh Sigurd's daughter, whose story is actually quite similar to Melkorka's.
1: Yeah, which is a nice segue to a conclusion, right? Oh, good. <laughs> we hope that this very cursory stroll through the subject of slavery in Viking Age Iceland has shown that there is something to be gained from sifting through these source materials, troubling as it might be for a variety of reasons. It's important to acknowledge that this history exists and to recognize the lasting impact that it has on Icelandic society. So by studying and seeking an understanding of slavery in medieval Iceland, I think we can gain a deeper appreciation for that country's cultural and social evolution.
0: Well, yeah, Yeah. part of studying the past is to gain new insight into Mm -hmm. issues of inequality and discrimination that continue to affect marginalized groups even today, Uh, even when the stories that we uncover are uncomfortable uh, or difficult to confront. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but for now, thank you for taking this journey with us. Uh, we want to now turn it over to a QA and uh, a to fill in any gaps or to get to a discussion about anything you like connected to our talk. Yeah, thank you. What, uh, what other kinds of, of texts are being produced in Iceland, you know, from the time of settlement on? Yeah. Uh, I mean, how dependent are historians on this? I mean they're a very important source of story. They use literary sources all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it is sort of a case of, well, by default, we have to rely upon them because there's not much else. Or yeah. And what about the role of archaeology in helping to flesh out you know, whatever the documentary?
1: Sure. I mean. um, I'll, I'll hit the, the archaeology piece first because it's a little bit faster. Um, so in terms of archaeology, what we can do is, as far as Iceland is concerned, is look, uh, dig up old farmsteads. So one of the things that they see in the evolution of farmsteads in Iceland is an expansion of the hall. So initially, the hall is going to be just one kind of rectangular building. Um, It's often very, very small. So again, if you go to Iceland and you're in the areas that we were talking about, you could visit Erikstadr. And Erikstadr is a place that Erik the Red lived. And you might be familiar with Erik the Red, whose children traveled to Greenland and then they end up in North America at some point. This place that he's he's living in is literally the size of like half of this the front of this room it's it's very very small and you'd have ten to fifteen people living in that but as time goes on and we look at wealthier um, halls, there's an expansion where it's not only getting a division of the rooms within that smaller hall um, they're adding actually adding on extra uh, rooms to the outside and some of the theories are that these are rooms that you can keep some slaves in, um, and as the house gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, you need to have more and more space um, the wealthier you are. So that's one of the, and again, it's just speculation. That's why I say we, it's, it's really hard. We can't exactly say who lived in those rooms and what happened in those rooms beyond this was a room where cooking took place. This is a room where people were sleeping, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit hard uh, on that, but that's one of the things that we can look at. There's also um, findings of shackles every once in a while, not in Iceland, to my memory, but in in Scandinavia. Um, But then even there, the questions are, are these shackles uh, for animals or are they for humans? Um, Even shackles that have... Uh, a circular, what we would call a neck ring with chains linking people together, and that is the suggestion. And there's even graffiti that exists that shows like uh, a Viking kind of taking prisoners. It's very messy kind of graffiti, uh, but they, they seem to have this this neck ring with chains connecting all of the slaves together. So that stuff kind of pops up as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it's all speculation. Even the the stuff in the the graves with the burials. Right. Um, the fact that their hands are bound and their feet are bound and they're, they're missing their heads does suggest that they uh, went to the grave maybe unwillingly or that this was part of the, the uh, some kind of sacrifice. Perhaps um, this is an attendant that is going with the, the wealthier person. Um, we don't know that they're slaves necessarily, though they could just be low-status individuals. Uh, we only know that they're low-status because of DNA testing or, or the isotope testing that says they had a, a much more meager diet than the person that they're that they're buried with. But again, are they slaves or are they low-status individuals? It's is really hard to say. In terms of
0: writing and documentary evidence, we could go through like all the different things that are right. well, written I mean, yeah, in that period. The chief problem with the literary evidence, the written evidence, is that uh, Settlement Age Iceland is... Uh, it's not, you can't really call it preliterate because they are using runic carvings, uh, but it, isn't, it doesn't have manuscript production. They aren't, they aren't writing texts down the way that we think of a literate society as doing. Um, it's only with the arrival of Christianity in about the year 1000 that you have a real influx of writing technology and writing as kind of a discipline. Uh, and so we have very little written down, again, carving, yes, but very little written down before the conversion of, of the early 11th century, and then what you have is an immediate shift over to the use of the Roman alphabet uh, and an explosion of writing that the stories are all there, but they now have a way of getting those stories written down. So our earliest texts tend to be uh, establishing stories about how the settlement happened. Uh a book is an example, is Lending a Book is another example of it, uh, where it's essentially a list of, and so Al came to this land and conquered this much land and gave her grandchildren these spaces. Uh, And so it's established that way. And then from there, you jump into the writing of the sagas. They use those first texts as a kind of jumping off point for telling these stories and often for uh, uh, corroborating things like names and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're, they're very useful for watching the development toward the writing down of the stories, but the literature is less sort of reliable as documentary evidence of the actual settlement age. Yeah. Yes. So when slavery eventually dies out, mm-hmm. what's the main difficulty? Yeah, that's a really good question. I really <laughs> wanted to
1: include that in the talk. That was supposed to be the conclusion, but uh, you know, we, we ran out of space in terms of the different examples we want to talk about. So it's really hard to say. It doesn't get outlawed. So um, I think you, you mentioned maybe this outlawry of, of slavery. It's not a formal kind of declaration that we shouldn't have slaves anymore necessarily. What ends up happening is it just becomes economically more feasible, a little bit economically easier to work with tenant farmers, right? The nice thing about tenant but farmers, it evolves, yeah, it yeah. simply evolves. And this happens on, in mainland Scandinavia especially. We have kind of this, this trend, this movement towards, well, if I have a slave, I have to feed that slave. I have to clothe that. I'm responsible for that person. If I have a tenant farmer, all I really need to do is make sure they're working. And as long as they're working, I'm good because I'm collecting the majority of whatever it is that they've got. Um, but they feed themselves. They take care of themselves. And so it just becomes an economic decision in, in much the way that the, I think that the conversion happens in in Iceland. Yeah. It's an economic it's and political economic kind choice. of thing. Yeah. So there's this, this kind of just movement towards tenant farming. And that takes over. It's much – it's equally cruel and it's not advantageous necessarily for the tenant farmers. Um, they don't have any real great rights or anything like that. But as far as the landowners who want to exploit labor, it's a great way to do it, and it's a little more cost-effective than having slaves.
0: Well, it's it's more effective in a lot of ways. I mean, a number of which, one of which is, if you're running your own house as a tenant farmer, even though you're still paying back to the person who technically owns you or owns the land, uh, then it's no longer their responsibility to care for you. Yeah. Uh, right. You now they're not part. Of, you're not part of their household anymore, and the laws are very clear about the responsibilities of a homeowner to anyone in their home in their household. And so by moving people out of the home into their own farms, into their own shacks, you remove most of that responsibility for their well-being. You remove the responsibility for taking action if they're hurt or killed. Uh, that it You basically get most of the benefits of having uh, enslaved peoples without the responsibilities that the law insisted that you had toward those slaves. Yeah. So yeah, it's an evolution, but it's not necessarily, weird as it to say, not necessarily a positive one yeah female yeah. slaves the into that
1: as well I think there's a couple factors there to consider as well mm. so if the if the the slave trade really starts to boom in the ninth century and one of the reasons that the slave trade in Europe is booming in the ninth century is those Islamic territories mm. have a where slaves are still a prestige item they're paying a premium for for slaves and scandinavians get deeply involved because they're good traders they're good merchants they have the ships to go get this stuff and they get heavily involved and they put a lot of resources into kind of especially if we're talking about the rus here yeah um we're talking about people who are making good business decisions to sell people right and they're getting a lot of money for this um, we have reports of the, the cost of slaves in the ninth century being some exorbitant price if you take them down and sell them to these Islamic traders who are going to then bring them down, um, into the, the Middle East and Africa. Um, but by the time you get to the 10th and 11th century, that market is so sat, so heavily saturated. I, I think mm-hmm. the Rus and other people got so good at this this kind of thing that the slaves aren't worth next to nothing anymore. They're basically like the cost of, I think, the, if I remember the, the research, the cost of something like 20 sheep is the same as the cost of a single person, which is relatively cheap in the marketplace at that point. So it's not as lucrative to to do the slave trade. And the other thing, going back to kind of the end of the Viking age, you have Vikings, they go in and they, they stay in a lot of these territories, mm-hmm. Like when you're talking about the great heathen army or you're talking about the settlement of Dublin or you're talking about going to Normandy with the story of Rollo and all that kind of stuff, they stay and they become part of those cultures and they become Christian uh, as a result of that as
0: well. And in some cases, they are then victimized by successive generations of Vikings. Right? Yeah. They're, they're the set. Right? Once you've settled, you're not a Viking anymore. Right. And it turns out there's no real like franchise thing going on. There's no respect for ex-Vikings. If you're raiding, Vikings are just as much... Former Vikings are as much a victim as anybody else.
1: Right. And so what ends up happening is um, you have the conversion of Scandinavia. And once you have Christian nations or Christian societies interacting with other Christian societies, they're less comfortable taking slaves from each other and doing those same kinds of raids. Um, Though it does still happen to some extent. Mm-hmm. As far as women and what happens with the the, the women's, because that was your, your your real question there, right? Is what happens to the female slaves? I think what ends up happening is we don't necessarily call them slaves anymore, but they are low lower status individuals that are brought into that household. It's definitely within um the those letters between bishops and and the popes, uh, talking mm-hmm. about why do they have multiple wives? And in that case, what we're talking about is not necessarily two formal wives of equal status. You have one wife who is your kind of uh, political and natural wife. And then you have these extra, probably lower class women who you are feeding and housing and taking advantage of. Uh, But it's all part of the system. So I think it's, again, it's a transition in terms of uh, maybe terminology
0: and status Mm -hmm. to some degree. Uh, At the upper level of society, you do have examples of people who do have multiple, quote-unquote, wives. Uh, uh, um, Knut, who ends up being king of much of Northern Europe. Uh, has multiple wives in different parts of his empire uh, and his father and children with all of them, which essentially is why his empire only lasts one generation because eventually his kids are all going to sort of compete for for control over the empire. Uh, but in that case, he has multiple women who are all considered his wives. And so it's not clear where the primacy in his children is because they do all have status. Um, yeah. So that's there is that example of coming by the later period where you do start to think of, multiple wives, as opposed to a, a wife and then other women, uh, as a possibility, or at least among the very, very wealthy. I was interested in uh, slaves providing place names. Yeah. Mm. And it's always great to have an origin story to go over. It, do you think that that's so certain values could be reinforced? Um, because it would, that story would follow. Right, right. And so, is that, is that to like, sort of hierarchy or sort of just, I mean, slave? You know, whether the, whether yeah, the values might be that follow that name.
1: Yeah, so the question is about whether, uh, about place names and, and slaves in place names and whether there's some kind of value system uh, being preserved uh, <laughs> through that. That's really, really hard to say. Um, I would say um, that talk that I went to by uh, Chris Callow from University of Birmingham was on that subject. It was really interesting. And his main argument, though there was a lot of stuff and it was a while ago. So if I mess it up, Chris, and you're listening, sorry. Um, The argument was that basically a lot of those are fictional stories. And slaves are the most convenient stories to be told because we don't have a record of them. Um, So we have in the 12th, 13th century geographical features that we can ground our story in and make our story feel more real. And if we can, if we can name that thing, or maybe it's traditionally called, you know, uh, Grani's Gat. This is Grani's Gat, right? Mm-hmm. The Grani's Gate. Um, but who Grani was. But who, who, We don't know who Grani was, but I can in my story that I'm inventing about some things that are historical, about some real people. I can give an origin story for why that, why that place is called what it is or i can create the name for that geographical feature and it will be preserved
0: across time
1: um so there's a variety of possibilities there um it's also what do you think? well
0: it's a uh, it's something that you see i mean just pan mythologically really that it's also you, know, you get this is why this is called right and in norse mythology you end up with like stars and things that get their name because a man's toe freezes off and thor cracks it off and throws it into the sky and it becomes a star uh, and so it's that idea of you sort of find your place and you navigate the world through stories and through stories that tell you why yeah. this is this and that is that, that's that's pretty universal. Mm-hmm. And then in, in Iceland in particular, or in Scandinavia, but Iceland because they're writing it down, mm. you do have this class of people who are largely invisible, who are very convenient to pin place names to if you don't have any other reason for it to be called this thing. Yeah. But as
1: far as like a value system being preserved in these place names, I think that is an interesting idea. But the value wouldn't be, don't treat your sla- slaves bad, or the value wouldn't be any, it would, right. the value is, uh, this is a story about a guy who grazed his cattle on the wrong pasture lands. And that means mm-hmm. in our value system, we respect all those boundaries. They're very, very important. Don't mess with it or, people are going to get killed. This is how feuds start. Right. I think those stories are, are, those preserve that value system and those can be passed down. And I, I, I would bet that some of those place names do, they harken back to a story of something that happened in that place and it could involve a slave, it could involve a fight, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. There's interesting things that help give meaning to these, these places, but they do preserve a value. I,
0: I wouldn't want us to uh, also to, to suggest that it's m- only or mainly slaves that this is happening for. Uh, the sagas are full of, and thus it's been called blank ever since for everybody. It's not just for slaves. Slaves are just convenient for things that you don't know why it's called that, mm-hmm. right? But, uh, you get, uh, uh, uh Onan Treeleg, uh, wow. who dies and is buried in One Legs Mound. Uh, and they say, well, that's, you know, where One Legs Mound is. It's just over there. Uh, so this is the guy who's buried there. That it's everybody is sort of being used to, to inscribe the landscape. Uh, it's just that slaves have a particular purpose when you when you aren't sure where the name is derived from.
1: Yeah, and all cultures do that kind of thing, right? Because there's a curiosity for the topography, right? Why is this? Why does this place look the way that it does? Mm-hmm. Where did that big rock come from? And we we'll create stories to get meaning out of that and to to help us understand uh, these right. things, which is and, really fascinating. And this
0: afternoon, we will we'll talk more directly about these connections between uh, uh, Celtic and, and Scandinavian stories. Because there's a lot of overlap there. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone
1: for your attention. Let's take a break and then uh, get some
0: re and play some more yeah. games. Thank you. <laughs>